1: There's only one rule. Exit your home and go forward. It seems so simple just saying it, you'd hardly think it was a test at all. I never really gave it much thought until one fateful eavesdropping. I was squishing a bread roll into a ball at my uni's cafeteria, as the table next to me argued about their childish scores. Eighteen miles, Megan. I made it eighteen miles without stopping. This has to be a local record. But you went around the houses, Alex. Alex? Well I wasn't going through them. I popped the little bread ball into my mouth, and something obvious clicked from those words. It's in the name of the game. You can't just go forward until it's inconvenient for you. It has to be truly forward. If there's a wall you climb it, if there's a river you swim across, and if there's a building, you really have to open a door and go through, no matter how awkward or dangerous. I'd known about this silly game since I was old enough to listen and even attempted it a few times when I was old enough to hear all the superstitions. But I never once tried to play it the right way. I have to assume there aren't many that have. A sudden slap to my back made the bread ball fall out of my mouth. My friend Cat was struck with inspiration. I'm going to play it for real this time, Bray. No going back. And so she did. There was nothing more to it. Cat never backed down from a challenge, even when she really should have. I've called enough ambulances to know, but I guess that's how a tough girl gets good at climbing, surviving, record-breaking, and being one manipulative girl. If she was missing the last trait, maybe I'd have talked her out of it, but no going back was her sworn mantra. That was two weeks ago, and so much has happened. There were too many texts that didn't make any sense and couldn't possibly be true, but there's one thing that matches up. Cat went forward. Every time she shared her map location, it was on a perfect straight line. Before I get into the messages, I'm going to share every superstition I've collected from friends about the forward test. I want to know if they match up to what any of you might have heard. If there's something I'm missing, it could better explain the last message she sent. So please let me know. Well then, no going back. Pack for as long as you plan to play, and only take the test alone. If you bring someone with you, they'll know you're cheating, and you don't want to be caught cheating. The first 20 doors you go through will require nothing more than a clever excuse to enter. From that point forward, you may need a clever excuse to leave. If the building you must enter is more than 10 floors, always go to the top floor before exiting. You don't want to miss what might be waiting there just for you. Count your doors and find a way to measure your miles. You'll be glad you did when things no longer look the size that you remember them being. The farther you go, the more people will try to lead you astray. An elderly woman in need of a favor, or an old friend who wants to get coffee may appear. If you're only ten miles deep, it's still safe to leave the path. The test will end there. Any point after ten miles, do not stray, and do not engage with those outside the buildings. No matter what incredible or, horrible, things they show you. The 30th building you enter will be blue. If it is any other color, turn around and go back immediately. Once you enter the blue building, you are a guest of the home. Remove your shoes at the door and bow to all you meet. There will be a feast of all your favorite foods readily offered to you. Kindly decline all but one offering, and do not leave without eating it. If they bring you your shoes as you exit the back door, it is safe to leave. If at any point on your journey you see the squinting man painted to look like the wall behind him, exit the current building or enter the next one as fast as you can without making a sound. If he hears you, he will open his eyes, and there is truly no advice for what happens next. If you must set up camp along your path, do not stay in any spot for more than six hours. After fifty doors, this will be reduced to forty minutes. You know it's time to move on when a certain sound starts. It doesn't need a description. You'll know it when you hear it. In one of the buildings you will open a door to a white hallway that appears impossibly long. Do not enter it. Close the door and open it again and the hallway will be shorter. Continue doing this until the hallway is no more than ten feet long. Be sure to do this quickly before the hallway resets. If you open the door to the long hallway and see something running towards you at an alarming speed, close the door and do not open it again you have exactly one chance to close it. The thing that runs will never stop chasing if you open the door even one more time. Go back the way you came. Do not attempt the test again. At either 300 miles or 100 doors, you will find a broken table holding a rusty old pin. If you choose to accept the pin, you must never take it off for more than one hour. If this is maintained, you will see good fortune. The journey is now over. Return to your home. Do not continue going forward. Nobody ever has. They will not allow it." These were all the superstitions surrounding the tests that I could remember. After Kat's test started, her early text messages all seemed to confirm that those were nothing more than lame stories from bored teens. And then she shared her adventures of trying to sweet-talk her way inside people's houses. Stuff like she needed to make a phone call. She was there for an inspection. Or sometimes she would just make a mad dash for their back door or parkour right over the roof. She even had the cops called on her twice, but she managed to escape both times. In the beginning, I was actually excited for new messages. It sounded like she was having a blast and living life exactly as I could always expect from her, wild and carefree. That sweet summer child just didn't know the meaning of fear. That was until she started finding real reasons to feel it. It was about a week after she set out that I started getting multi-paragraph texts. She had made it a hundred miles, or at least she thought she had. According to her, nothing here looks like it's supposed to look, so it's hard to tell. She never explained what she meant by that, but instead started telling me about all the horrible things she hears at night, and that night stays too long now, and how she wishes she ate less than they gave her, and that the buildings weren't fun anymore. The messages became less and less coherent the more forward she went. Some of what she said sounded like the tales we told each other growing up, but far more of it was unfamiliar, and so much more disturbing than she could have come up with on her own. I really don't know what to do. The location updates have stopped, but I'm still getting messages. Even so, this just isn't like her. I know they're only supposed to be stories, and it's just a silly game, but I can't help but worry and that last superstition I shared has me the most worried of all. You see, of all the strange and impossible messages I got from Kat these past couple days, the most alarming one said, I broke the record. No going back. Before my wife passed, we had decided we'd have a big family, one we could love and cherish and always be there for. At the time, we hadn't realized the gravity of our decision and how much it would change our lives. But to this day, I have no regrets. We couldn't conceive naturally, so we had adopted. The thing about having children, whether of biological relation or not, is that you have no idea who you'll get. Sure, with blood, you can determine what percentage of your genetics will be passed down and can likely assume race, eye color, hair color, etc. About the child based on you or your partner. But that's child's personality, and everything about them is unique to them. Yet my wife had looked at her kids and just knew. She knew all of her daughters, knew her son, and had insisted on adopting every single one of them. She knew exactly who she was taking home, and she cherished them so, so deeply. This is why it hadn't been surprising to hear that her spirit had remained to watch over us, or at least that was what we had originally thought. For introduction, I would like to tell you about my children. My wife and I had five beautiful kids. The eldest was Anita, who was seventeen at the time. Following her were the twins, Delaney and Daria, at fifteen. Our youngest was nine, and her name was Lydia. And at twelve, my only son was Kasuke. Because half of my children were born of different cultures, speaking different languages than I, I had made sure I was able to speak with them in both their native tongue as well as in English. My wife and I had learned Mandarin, Chinese for Anita, and Japanese for Kasuke. Though they rarely spoke their languages at the time, I had kept up with grammar and practice, just in case. Which is why, at first, it had shocked me when Kasuke came up to me and said, Yurei Gaaru, there is a ghost. At the time, we had recently moved. My wife had been killed in the city, accidentally shot in a drive-by while walking to the parking garage after work. I hadn't wanted our children to remain there, to remain in the home that she had stayed in, and to live in the very city she had been murdered in. So I took us to my hometown in the middle of the rural Midwest. Real estate is far cheaper. Real estate is far cheaper here, and my job is quite versatile, so it had been relatively easy to make happen. Only a week into living in the new house, and Kasuke informed me of the ghost. I had looked at him and asked, "Dokoka, ka? Where? Soko, he had said, pointing upstairs. "'Over there?' Dore, I had asked. "'Who?' "'And Kasuke had said, "'Ha-ha, Mom!' "'It hadn't been abnormal for Kasuke "'to get lost in the grief. "'My children all mourned in their own ways, of course. "'My son had often taken to talking about my wife "'as if she were still with us, right next to us. "'Whether at the dinner table or in the car "'or out and about,' He had acted as if his mother was alive. I had entertained him at the time. Well, I had switched over to English. I'm sure she just wants to say hi to you. Kasuke had stuck to Japanese. Nihongo o Hanasanai That had sent a chill of fear down my spine, for some reason. Hearing my twelve-year-old monotonously say she can't speak Japanese made me nervous. Because if my son were talking to her ghost... Why hadn't she been able to understand the language she had taken years to learn just for him? It was then that I had realized what my son was getting at, so I had told him. Ha Janai... That's not Mom. Kasuke had nodded. Now, I believe in ghosts. As a child, I had experienced my fair share of oddities, and during my college years, I had been a self-proclaimed amateur investigator of the paranormal. While I had never seen anything... Even to this very day, I had witnessed lights turning on or off, heard footsteps and voices, and had once gotten touched despite nobody being behind me. Who was I to say that my son wasn't seeing his mother? Or rather, someone who looked like his mother. Months had passed. Kasuke had told me, always in Japanese, about the woman upstairs that looked like mom, or acted like mom, or sounded like mom but wasn't able to speak Japanese or Mandarin Chinese. She had told me she was kind and that she was watching over us, that she saw everything we did. Yet that hadn't been a comfort, not at all. It was sometime in late July, soon before the new school year, when I had woken to Kasuke screaming. My son often had nightmares, even now in his thirties. The kid has an active imagination that sometimes gets the better of him. And so I had assumed, mid-run into his room, that it had just been that. A nightmare, that was all. My nightmare wouldn't tug on a child's leg, though. Leg, blanket, and even the mattress, all jerking downwards at once, as if something had a hold on his ankle and was trying to drag him away. Kasuke had grabbed at the sheets, and I grabbed him, yanking him up and into my arms without thought. There'd be no resistance when I had done so. I remember thinking, while crossing his room and walking out into the hall, that whatever had been pulling him would trip us on our way. But nothing had. I carried Kisuke, a sobbing, shaking mess, into my room, telling his sisters to go back to bed and that everything's fine, go to bed. I don't think either of us got any more sleep that night. It had happened again about a week later, and again I don't recall to what frequency, but just that. For months. We had both lost so much sleep to the fear of it happening. I had switched his room with mine, had him sleeping downstairs rather than up, had not moved him and Anita into the same room, and still it happened. Only when he was alone, though. What does she want? I asked him one day, while we were out at the grocery store. He had made some sort of vague gesture and said something along the lines of, not sure. Have you told her to stop? I asked. Kasuke assured me. I told them to, but they won't. They? Implying more than one. When I had inquired about that, Kasuke told me that there were multiple not-moms. They would stand around his bed, one or multiple pulling, several watching. When I had finally asked how many are there, Kasuke had gotten quiet. He hadn't looked at me in the eye, was silent the whole drive back. Only when we had pulled into the driveway did he say, At first there was just one. Now there's nine. He had been staring at the house, not moving, "'not unbuckling his belt. "'So I asked, safely in Japanese, "'Kega shite tet, have you been hurt?' "'E, no, it didn't matter. "'The look in his eyes told me we had to leave. "'Those not-moms must have known, though, "'because as soon as I had begun looking for new, affordable places, "'things got so much worse, so much faster.' Anita had seen him get tugged in their shared room, both during the day and at night. His sisters had told me about when they were home alone. He would jerk backwards or stumble as if something had grabbed his shoulder or tripped him. And I had witnessed things being thrown his way. Clothes, toys, books, dishware. I had even caught a heavy can of paint before it could crack open his head. It had been up on a shelf, completely void of the ledge. Things would always fall. Items of his would go missing— and every damn night they would grab for him. The one time the not-moms had been successful was the last time we had been in the house. Kasuke had taken to sleeping in my room. We had gone to extreme measures, chaining him to the headboard, loosely, not enough to cut circulation or keep his wrist above his head, but merely to keep him from being dragged too far. Tying the blankets down at the end, and it had seemed to work. The blankets would pull, his feet would jerk, but he would go nowhere. I underestimated the knot moms. They learned how to unlock the strap around his wrist. I had woken up to his shrieking. An invisible force yanked him sideways, foregoing his legs and pulling him headfirst to the floor. It was the farthest these things had gotten him, and they didn't relent. I scrambled out of bed and grabbed him just before he could be dragged out into the hallway. With my feet planted on either side of the doorway, I hugged him close, and prayed it would release him. We heard the footsteps only a second later. Fast. Far too fast to be human. Skittering across the hallway rug, against the drywall, on the ceiling. A disembodied, high-pitched chortle followed. When Anita had thrown open her door all the way at the end of the hall, something had slammed it shut in her face. She had only just managed to avoid getting her fingers smashed. "'The twins had been crying in their room, yelling out, "'What was that? And it's in here, and go away!' through their sobs. "'I had curled over Kasuke, "'but something still fought me as I felt a lung-crushing pressure against my back, "'and something had been trying to force my chin up, up, and away "'from where it had been tucked against the crown of my son's head. "'Luckily, Lydia had been untouched and perfectly fine. "'Kasuke's head had been bleeding,' and to this day he has a scar from where his forehead had clipped against the edge of the bed frame, a short, thick rope of scar tissue against his hairline. When I had gotten to my feet, I had made sure to drag Kasuke upright with me. He'd been shaking and silent, likely scared to hell, and I just couldn't do it anymore. We had packed bags for a few days in a hotel, and left only an hour later. I had stayed with Kasuke the entire time. It took me mere days to find an apartment and negotiate moving in. The damn thing had been cramped, and all my kids had to share a room while I shoved our stuff into storage. But we had made it work until I could afford a different place. I also got a friend of mine, a very spiritual woman, to get her friend to put protection on him. She told me that my late wife had been protecting him all along, but now he was vulnerable. I hope that protection is still sturdy in place." Even though it's been about two decades, Kasuke tells me he remembers it clear as day. Only a few months ago, when we had all gathered to celebrate 4th of July together, he had told me. Oh yeah, I remember that. Anita had shared with us her experience of sleeping in the same room as Kasuke. She told us that she had always been something, sometimes. She had told us that she had always seen something, sometimes. At first she thought it was her imagination, since it had always been in the middle of the night, when she had awoken mid-dream. But when she had described it, Kasuke had shot up and agreed. According to them, it had looked like their mother had on. It had her long black hair, her round face, her smile. But Anina had said that, when it wasn't looking at her, it had bulging eyes, as if they had been just stuck right on top of another pair, so she says, and its face was caved in without a nose, as if it had been cleaved down the middle. Forgive the possible graphic image. Anita is a horror poet.